Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Last Sunday we began looking at Daniel 6 and we saw the, 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 the deception that the satraps and the presidents under King Darius used to trick Darius into signing the law for Darius Appreciation Month. And of course the whole purpose of their deception was to take care of Daniel. They wanted to get Daniel out of the way. They knew, apparently, they had heard rumors that Darius was considering setting Daniel over the entire kingdom, and they weren't about to have it. And so those two other presidents, along with some of the satraps, they wanted to get rid of Daniel. And it was likely because of Daniel's excellent spirit, the fact that Daniel distinguished himself above all those other presidents, all the other leaders in the kingdom, they were motivated by intense jealousy, and of course, they probably wanted to be able to get away with their dishonest schemes, which is difficult when you have an honest person over you. And so they wanted to get rid of Daniel, so they used deception. And I just want to ask you again, I want to say again, oh, that the only thing that the world would be able to get at us about would be in relation to our God. Oh, that that would be the case. Now I realize all of us are human. All of us have faults and failures and all those things, shortcomings. But all oh, that they were that the watching world would only, when they look at us, the only thing be able to find against us be in relation to the law of our God. Well, Darius was duped. The edict was signed. For 30 days, no one could pray to any god except Darius, or at least through Darius. And so the conspirators gathered at Daniel's window and waited. Daniel there in the upper room, uh, upper floors, and I, I just kind of picture these conspirators down below just waiting. They were waiting on that noon bell to ring because then they knew Daniel would be praying, and the windows would open. They knew Daniel's custom. His faith was no secret. He was a devoted servant of Yahweh, and they knew it. And they knew this was their opportunity to get rid of Daniel, and so there they were waiting. Now, when Daniel's life was on the line, would his devotion to God end? And of course we saw last Sunday, of course not. Because Daniel had forged his character in times when it wasn't necessarily on the line, and now when it was on the line, he just kept on serving God, being devoted to God. One commentator put it this way. said this. They said, Daniel had to answer the question, what matters most, the worship of God or my safety? His, resp his response shows that he so much has said, I must not make an idol of my own safety. And so by prayer, I destroy that idol. Daniel's life was literally on the line. But he refused to make an idol out of his own safety. So the deception had worked. Daniel's devotion has now gotten him in trouble with the law of the Medes and Persians. It can't be revoked, and Daniel's headed to the lions. That's where we left him last week. 
Now, I, I just want to mention again, Daniel's just not stubborn. He's not stupid. Daniel did what he did because his behavior was centered on the worthiness of his God. He knew God was worthy of his devotion, and so he was, he was willing to go to the lion's den if that's what it took for him to maintain his devotion to God. And obedience to a worthy God may be costly, but it's worth it. It's worth it. And you and I have to be determined we're going to serve God no matter what. So now, we've seen now the deception and the devotion. Now we're going to go to number three, okay? Aren't you glad I didn't preach all this message last Sunday because I've got a long ways to go yet? So we're at point three now, right? So now we're going to see distress. Look at verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. This is Daniel chapter 6, verse 14. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of the lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Darius has been had. He's been had. These presidents and satraps have deceived him. And now he's stuck. But scripture here tells us that he has set his mind to deliver Daniel. Now that's remarkable in and of itself. But now King Darius has set his mind, he's going to do everything in his power to figure out a solution to the predicament that he's gotten himself into. Now evidently the law prescribed that by, the, by sundown on the same day of the crime, the one convicted had to be cast into the den of lions. And so now the king is in a distressing situation. And it's really a striking picture because here is the king of the largest empire in the known world to that time in, a, in distress because he can't revoke a law that he's just signed. He can't save now his favorite advisor. He's made a law and now he's bound by his own words. Which later politicians, of course, have figured out a way around following their own laws. You know that. But back in, back in this day, uh, this particular politician was stuck. He had to obey his own law. Nowadays, that doesn't necessarily apply, right? But in this day, he was stuck. And so as the sun began to set, the conspirators came back to King Darius. They've got him and Daniel right where they want him. And so they come to Darius and they just remind him of something. They say, no, O king, 
that it's a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. In other words, Darius, you maybe have set your mind to figure out a solution here, but you're stuck. And now they're kind of rubbing it in. You can't change the law. Ironically, the king who's supposed to be in control is now trapped. And so he reluctantly gives the order and Daniel is cast into the den of lions. We know this story so well, don't we? He's powerless. But I want you just to notice something here. Notice what the king says about Daniel. What's he say? He says, you serve God continually. May your God whom you serve continually. Even the king has noticed that Daniel is faithful in his obedience to God. And so my question for you is can the same be said about your service and your obedience to God? Do you serve him continually or is your obedience, is your worship of God only something you do on Sunday when you come to church or are you on Monday living the same thing you claim to live on Sunday? The problem with most people that claim to be Christians today is not that they're being thrown to lions because of their obedience. The problem with most people who claim to be Christians today is there's not enough evidence to convict them to throw them to lions. And so Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. A stone is put over the mouth of the den. Darius seals it with his signet ring so no one can... He can't escape and no one can go in and kill him. Sound familiar? This happens later in the New Testament with somebody else. And then Darius spends the night fasting. No diversions are brought in. He can't eat or sleep. All he can think about is Daniel being torn apart by the lions. But there's just this nagging thought in Darius's mind that he wonders if perhaps Daniel's God might be able to save him from the lions. By the way, this was a, a, what in that day was considered a trial by ordeal. And, and they were common in this period. Usually they were used when guilt or innocence was sometimes difficult to determine. And so they would, the, the person would be put into the hands of their God, their deity, exposed to some dangerous situation. And if they survived the situation... They were considered innocent, and that's exactly what happens. That's why the next day Darius is able to set Daniel free because his God delivered him. But all night long, Darius is without sleep. He's filled with distress. And then at verse 19, we're told at the break of day, the king arose and he went in haste to the lions. He came near to the den where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish. Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the hand of the lions? Now, I want you to notice something here. Who's the person that's distressed? Like, we're told multiple times here that someone is distressed. But the one that's distressed is not the one in the den with the lions. There's no evidence that Daniel's distressed at all. The one who's worried, the one who's all troubled, 
the whole focus of verses 16 to 20 is on the anguish of the king here, and he's the one that's all tore up about it. And all we hear in these verses is about Darius agonizing in the night. Why is that? Well, I think there's multiple reasons, but perhaps one of them is to show us that rulers may not be personally hostile to us, and, but even if they favor us, don't put your hopes in them. For they can be as hopeless and as helpless as anyone else. Perhaps part of the reason why the author here of Daniel is pointing this anguish the king has is he set his mind to deliver Daniel, but he can't. But who can? Who can? Daniel isn't filled with distress. Even though he knew if he prayed to Yahweh and it would lead him to the lion's den, there's no evidence of distress. He just simply trusts God. I wonder sometimes about us because we get so filled with distress over all kinds of things. A lot of us have been filled with distress in recent weeks and months in the past year. Why is that? Why do we get filled with distress? Could it be because we're looking at the wrong place or we're looking to the wrong person? Corey Ten Boom said, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at God, you'll be at rest. What happened with Isaiah? Isaiah, you know, he got his eyes off of the king. And when the year that the king died, when the year the king Uzziah died, that's when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. What happened? His eyes got off the king and got on God. It may just be the case that God wants us to get our eyes off of who's in charge, to get our eyes off of the problems in our world. It might be a good idea for you to shut Fox News off or CNN off, shut Facebook off, and maybe get your face in the book and start trusting in God again. Get your eyes on Jesus and off of the world, and then maybe you won't be so distressed and depressed all the time. Those things have a corrosive effect on our faith. The king's filled with distress. But we know what happens next, because next comes deliverance. Verse 21, then Daniel said to the king, I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> I just wonder if Darius had to pick himself up off the ground when Daniel responded. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel 
were brought and cast into the den of the lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. You don't get thrown in a den of lions and live to tell about it. And to illustrate that point, we're told about the people who's thrown in the conspirators and their families. And Scripture tells us before they even hit the bottom, it wasn't that the lions, the reason the lions didn't eat Daniel that night wasn't because they weren't hungry. It was because God was there with him in the lion's den. And he shut the mouths of the lions. But notice why. Daniel says, because I was found blameless before him and before you, O king, I have done no harm. And then down a little further, we're told, Daniel says, because he trusted in his God. Daniel's integrity to God has now been vindicated. Daniel was blameless before God. Some people will tell you that's not possible, but it is possible. And Daniel was blameless before his God. But Daniel also asserts that he was blameless before the king, and he hadn't done harm to Darius. Now, how can that be? Because Daniel has broken the king's law, right? Here's the reality. If you have to choose between serving God and breaking man's law, you're actually doing a service to the watching world, and in Daniel's case, the king, by choosing to obey God rather than man. Daniel had done no harm to Darius. In fact, by remaining obedient to God, Daniel had done the most loving thing he could do for Darius. What was that loving thing that Daniel did? He showed him what a true worshiper and follower of God does. And standing for truth won't always be popular. In fact, it usually isn't. But standing for truth in a world of compromise is the most loving thing you can do for a compromising world. And you'll be called a hater. That often is thrown around. And we should never be intentionally hateful. Okay? But we live in a world that has forsaken the law of God. And there are times in which when you stand for the truth of God's word, the world is going to look at you and say you're hateful. They may make laws against it and you're going to have to choose. I'm going to serve God and you may, you may be punished for it. But the most loving thing you can do for those people who have chose to forsake the law of God is to stand for it. That's the most loving thing you can do. And Daniel stood for God, and God stood for him. Daniel opened his mouth in prayer for God, and God shut the mouths of the lions on Daniel's behalf. But I want to just mention here, we should not take from this that God was obligated to rescue Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember when they would not bend, they would not bow, they would not burn? Remember, they said, God might not save us, but we're still not going to bow. That's what they told Nebuchadnezzar. God in his providence chose in this instance to deliver Daniel. Hebrews 11 tells us that some through faith stopped the mouths of lions. 
But what else does Hebrews chapter 11 tell us? Hebrews chapter 11 also tells us that some are sawn asunder. They're cut in two for Christ. God doesn't always choose to deliver from the lion's den. We must be willing to persist in our faith, even to the point of death. And if God chooses not to deliver us from death, that's okay. One commentator put it this way, and I'm going to quote here at length for just a moment, okay? Because I want you to hear this. I believe it's important. They wrote, as I've been trying to write this afternoon, a noisy motorcycle has disturbed the late afternoon quiet I usually enjoy. My printer has both jammed and overflowed copies from the tray. Dropbox refused to show a document I needed. These are minimal. Okay, they don't even register. Sufferings. But I have nonetheless found myself thinking, seriously, God, I'm trying to do some good work for you here. Give me a break. I'll pause here for a moment. Anybody been there? And he goes on. And so goes the insidious drift toward bad theology. Grant Redeff, a rector in South Africa, writes about a parallel post-biblical Christianity that characterizes much of the church growth in that country. People expect fulfilling jobs and satisfying marriages, or they expect that their cows will give milk and barren wombs will open. He's referring, of course, to the more commonly known prosperity gospel in which God blesses us with health and wealth when we follow the right script. But you do not have to be a proponent of the prosperity gospel to assume that things will go well for followers of God. Doesn't the Bible include page after page supporting the notion that God blesses those who are faithful? Just look at Daniel, an all-around good guy who trusted and obeyed God, who delivered him from death. Three chapters earlier, the same thing happened to his godly friends. Most of us believe in our hearts that if we're, quote, good Christians, end quote, God will return the favor. An extension of this belief is that when things do go badly, as they do for everyone at some point, God must have something better for us. He will come through for us, erasing the bad with better. I particularly heard this theology in my single 20s when well-meaning friends assured me that God had something or someone wonderful for me. They assumed that since I was a, quote, good Christian who wanted to be married, God would make it happen. More than a decade later, loving friends told me that my arduous pursuit of advanced degrees would lead to God's perfect job for my training, gifts, and passions. Such encouragement may buoy you spirits, but it's bad theology. Godly people remain unemployed or underemployed. Long-held dreams of devoted Christians die. Faithful followers lose their children, their health, and their retirement accounts. And things just might not really get better on this side of the new earth. The persistent belief that God must have something better for us when life disappoints is false and even offensive comfort. When a diagnosis is a death sentence, nothing short of a cure can be better. When a loved one dies tragically, prematurely, nothing short of a resurrection can be better. We will suffer in this life, like death and taxes, you can count on it. But in the turn the world on its head nature of the gospel, 
God can redeem suffering. He can do something beautiful and beneficial with it. It may not necessarily be something we would define as better. You may not get the job, clean bill of health, or a child you so deeply desire. But God is working a grander plan that extends far beyond our individual circumstances. He can use suffering to train us as His children, demonstrate grace in our lives, and display His power to the world. End quote. Bad theology. Our world is filled with it. God doesn't always choose to deliver from the lion's den. God is working His ultimate purpose in our lives. In a sense, He is working something better, but that better may not be seen in this life. But we don't live just for this life. And so no matter what Joel Osteen tells you, if you live for your best life now, that's all you're going to get is now. But we don't live for our best life now. We're living for the day in which He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Where there'll be no more suffering, no more pain. Daniel was taken out of the lion's den. He didn't even have a scratch on him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't even smell a smoke. Daniel had no harm on him. But that doesn't mean you and I will always escape all suffering in this life just because God did it in some instances. We don't always understand God's full purpose and plan, but we simply have to trust in the providence and in the sovereignty of God who does all things well. Deliverance came for Daniel because he trusted in God, because he was blameless. But you and I may trust in God, we may be blameless, and deliverance may not come in this life. But that doesn't mean God wasn't faithful, and it doesn't necessarily mean we may not have been faithful. The idea that if you're suffering, you must have done something wrong is of the devil. And far too often we're more like Job's comforters than we like to admit. What did Job's comforters come and tell him over and over? You must have done something. This wouldn't have happened if you hadn't done something wrong. It's impossible for you to have not done something wrong, Job. And far too often we're more like Job's comforters than we like to admit. The purpose of this whole event, though, in Daniel chapter 6, I think is really found in what comes next, and I'm wrapping up. Because Darius makes a declaration, and I think this is really the whole purpose then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the, all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people tr are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions, 
So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now that's quite the incredible declaration by King Darius. And I just want to remind you this morning that the purpose of God working miracles is not, God doesn't do them just to show off, but he does it to demonstrate to a lost world that there is one true God who is to be honored and is to be worshipped. And the hero of Daniel chapter 6 is not Daniel. Now thank God he's, he's, he is a hero of the faith, but he's not the ultimate hero. The ultimate hero of Daniel chapter 6 is God. The God who had the power to spare a man. And what's fascinating about this whole account is there's two declarations in the book of Daniel by pagan kings. One of them by Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning of the 70 years of captivity. And now one of them at the end of the 70 years of captivity by Darius. And they're both proclaiming that the God of Daniel is a living God who endures forever. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. It's January 1933. You ready? I'm going to tell you another story from Bonhoeffer. All right? You know I like Bonhoeffer, so I'll share a story from him. January 1933. So what is that, 90-some years ago now? Shortly before Adolf Hitler came to total power in Germany, Bonhoeffer went before his church and he preached a message on fear. Bonhoeffer wanted his people to hear a message from Christ on a subject that was affecting them all because... Hitler's rising to power. The Nazis are rising to power. And Bonhoeffer began his sermon this way. He said, the Bible, the gospel, Christ, the church, the faith are all one great battle cry against fear in the lives of human beings. Fear is somehow or the other the arch enemy itself. It crouches in people's hearts. It hollows out their insides until their resistance and strength are spent and they suddenly break down. Fear secretly gnaws and eats at all the ties that bind a person to God and to others. And when, and when, and when in a time of need that person reaches for those ties and clings to them, they break and the individual sinks back into himself or herself, helpless and despairing while hell rejoices. And then he goes on, he says, but the human being doesn't have to be afraid. We should not be afraid. This is what makes us different from all other creatures. In the midst of every situation where there is no way out, where nothing is clear, where it is our fault, when we know there, where, there, where it is our fault, we know that there is hope. And this hope is called, Thy will be done. Yes, Thy will be done. This world may fall. God stands above all. His thoughts unswayed, his word unstayed, his will forever are ground in hope. Do you ask? How do you know? Then we name the name of the one who makes the evil inside us recoil, who makes fear and anxiety themselves tremble with fear and puts them to flight. We name the one we named the one who overcame fear and led it captive in victory procession, who nailed it to the cross and committed it to oblivion. We named the one who is the shout of victory of humankind redeemed from the fear of death. 
Jesus Christ, the crucified and living one. He alone is Lord over fear. It knows him as, it, as its master. It gives way to him alone. So look to Christ when you are afraid. Think of Christ. Keep him before your eyes. Call upon Christ and pray to him. Believe that he is with you now, helping you. Then fear will grow pale and fade away. And you will be free through your faith in our strong and living Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, we may not face all the same fears that those Germans did as the Nazis were rising to power. But we face fear. And we must not allow fear to dictate or direct our lives. Whether it be fear of a virus or fear of violence, or fear of whatever. We need to turn to Christ and put our eyes on Him. Fear. Fear's a liar. And we serve one who is greater than fear. So why did the author of Daniel write all this? Well, he wanted to encourage the exiles remain faithful. Remain faithful to God's law even as Daniel did in exile. Daniel remained faithful. You can remain faithful too. But he also wanted his readers to trust in God. Remain faithful to God. Trust in God. Because God has a way of doing what no man can do, what you can't explain. God is faithful and we must remain faithful to him and keep our trust in him. Amen. Ultimately, we know that there came one who was greater than Daniel. He was put behind a stone too. And a seal was put on that stone as well. Daniel faced death, but survived. But then ultimately he died again. Jesus Christ actually died. And then he rose again. And he ever lives. Aren't you thankful for Jesus this morning? So let's keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus, we thank you this morning for the fact that you are trustworthy. And Lord, we can just put our faith in you we can fix our eyes on you in the midst of a world that is filled with turmoil and a world that's filled with fear. Lord, we can lift our heads high. We don't have to fear because we're on God's side. <laughs> and God's, you're on our side because we're serving you. And so, Lord, help us, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Lord, help us to just shut off the distractions of this world that would cause us to begin to be filled with fear. And fear eventually leads to hatred and violence and all of those things. God, may it not be so for any of my people. Lord, would you help all of us, Lord, just to fix our eyes on Jesus. Thank you so much for going to the cross for our sins. Thank you for dying and rising again. You've been given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And Lord, right now we just go ahead and proclaim you Lord of our lives. You are the King of our lives. We crown you now. Help us, Lord, to live that this week in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. May God bless you. You're dismissed.